In the previous section, Paul's last word was of obtaining the promise of resurrection from the dead. Using the imagery of an athletic contest, Paul describes how his resurrection is something he has yet to experience. Unlike some in Philippi, Paul does not claim to have obtained it already, but continues to live in light of its hope here and now, even while he awaits the ultimate reality in the future. Reading from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 1, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even in tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love, and long for my joy and my crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. The word of God. If you're ever in any negotiation or you're a parent talking with a child and um, no matter how old they've become, how, how adult they may consider themselves, remember this line. You know, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. In other words, you don't have to say, there's your view, there's my view, and then there's your view, you know, that there's the right view, and then there's your view. You, you just say, all of us who are, who are mature should, should think this way, the way we think. And then, then just in case, just to make sure you've, you've sealed the deal, you then add this. And if, some, if at some point, or on some point, you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's, it's not, well, you might be right. It's like, 
God will bring you around eventually. I mean, Paul's just a genius at, at um, disagreeing with people and doing it in the most um, that you wouldn't know that you were being insulted or, or corrected. And that's the way. So just that's a good line. Memorize it if you, if you need it. At the 2012 London Olympics, Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt had already won gold medals in the 100-meter and the 200-meters race, and he ran the last leg of the 4 by 100 men's relay. Of course, they won. Not only in 2012, they did it again in 2016. He did it again in 2016. When the camera caught up to him, he looked into the lens and said, Who is the greatest? Who is the legend? Me. And the next camera shot was to Bob Costas, um, the broadcast host, somewhat taken aback by Hussein's emphatic self-congratulations. Costas, with an understated tone, if you've ever watched much of him, he said, and as great as he is... <laughs> I guess it's hard to have a higher opinion of Usain Bolt than he has of himself. And then he adds, so we'll leave it there as he punctuates his second Olympics the same way he did with his first, with back-to-back-to-back victories. Costas' response was similar to that of the Apostle Paul when he learned that some in Philippi believed themselves to be already resurrected and already made perfect, completely mature. So Paul kindly and clearly states that he himself has yet to attain this, nor has he, made, nor has he been made complete and mature. And by implication, he's saying, nor has anyone else. And using imagery of a race, he implies the finish line is still ahead of him, and he is still chasing it. In this way, he warns them against any tendency to some super spiritual view of Christianity, which imagines that the full life of the age to come is already happening here and now. Um. There is still the waiting and hope for the prize, the resurrection that is to come. And true maturity, according to Paul, is actually knowing that we live in the tension of this already um, aware of what is promised in the future, but the not yet of it having been fully realized here and now. Every athlete knows the race isn't over until the end has been reached, till one crosses the finish line. The prize that waits, Paul describes, is the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Now this is where we might need to think differently because most of us have, when we hear language like this, we have a particular image in mind. We have mistakenly thought that this is a reference to heaven, the place where we as Christians aim to go at the end. But this isn't particularly what Paul is speaking about or what Paul is saying in this passage. 
The theologian who has helped make this most clear to me is N.T. Wright, and here's how he describes it. Paul's not speaking of going up to heaven, but of the Lord Jesus coming from heaven to earth in order to transform the world and change our bodies so that we will be made like his own resurrected, glorified body. Living in heaven is not the goal we're aiming for, Paul was saying. Rather, it's living in God's new world with new bodies. That is the ultimate goal. So the upward call seems to be this striving or aiming for the resurrected life itself. Straining forward towards it like an athlete aims for the finish line and the prize that awaits him or her. Meaning living in the present in light of the future. It's a tension. We know all along what that resurrected life means. We know that it means we live differently. And so we choose to live differently here and now because of that resurrected life. While Paul suggests there is effort on his part in order to grasp or lay hold of the prize or attain the goal, he immediately clarifies that such an effort is nothing more than a response to what God has done to him and for him in Christ Jesus. In fact, he carefully constructs his thought using the same verb to bring out the significance of this order So Paul's efforts after holiness, the work of proclaiming the gospel, and the eventual goal of resurrection are not his effort to do something that will win God's favor. No, they all occur within the context of God's gift of grace. Paul wants to lay hold of that which has laid hold of him. As Jesus has grasped hold of Paul, so he wants to continually and faithfully run his race to the very end and claim the prize that is to come. Um, I know this, this is different than what we've all heard, and particularly um, when we think of heaven and we think of loved ones in heaven. So let me just offer this clarification. Paul lived with the belief that Jesus' return would happen in his lifetime. And so he's not addressing what happens to someone who has died in this life. And what about the resurrection for that individual? He addresses that in Thessalonians. But here he's just simply talking about having a mindset that understands what the resurrected life is. It has not been accomplished yet. It is yet to come. That's, that's the only point he's making. He's not trying to say anything about the reality of heaven as much as he's trying to say, you know, we're not trying to punch our ticket to leave earth or nor are we in the Star Trek fame, you know, beam me up kind of emphasis. But, but rather, well, all he's simply saying is what we're looking forward to, what the, what the whole thrust of Jesus' life and his claim upon us, his claim upon this world is to return and transform it to make it whole again, to make us whole again. That's the emphasis. It's what, it's, it's what we pray for every time we say the Lord's Prayer. I'll talk about that in just a minute. 
When Paul tells the Philippians now in verse 20, we're citizens of heaven. Again, he's not talking about the fact that, that, we, that we live in the city lined with streets of gold. As much as he's saying, he's drawing a parallel to what it means for them, the Philippians, to be a colony of Rome and be citizens of Rome. Now, not everyone in the congregation was, but enough were, so they knew what that meant. Philippi was their home, but it was more than a city in Greece. It was a colony of Rome. They didn't have to reside in Rome itself to know the same rule, the same protection, the same lifestyle, the same benefits, the same existence that was true of people that lived in Rome was true of them. Their life matched that of Rome itself. If we think that Paul's words are referring to us as residents of heaven, and we're merely waiting to go there and live there where we eventually belong, then again, we're missing Paul's point here. For someone from Philippi to say we're citizens of Rome, they did not mean they hoped to someday live there. That's not what they meant at all. It was quite the opposite. The capital was already full with everyone else who had migrated there. So Rome wasn't saying, come, come live with us. Let's all be one gigantic city um, overflowing with people. No, the task of a Roman citizen was um, to live elsewhere and to bring Rome's culture and governance to that location, in this case to northern Greece, to expand the Roman influence so that everything looked just like Rome and felt like Rome. And the person who is a citizen of Rome has all the privileges and responsibilities that goes with that citizenship. Now imagine Paul saying, you are citizens of heaven. He's not saying that's where you reside. He's saying wherever you reside, let that reality be the way you live. Let that realm influence how you live and how you see the world, how you function in the world. What would it mean to have the culture and kingly rule of heaven be realized where we live. Whether it's Pittsburgh or Paris or Santa Rosa. We're all to live as if this world and all the people in it belongs to God. And that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection signals a new reality of his coming. I mean, if you think... That's not what Paul's saying. Then listen again to what he says um, right after he mentions that they are citizens of heaven. You'd think I'd know right where it was. Okay, here it is, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there. Do you see the direction going on? It's not our going there. It's Christ coming here. We eagerly await the Savior's coming. As citizens of heaven, we know who's coming. We know what his reign will be like. We know what the celebration entails. 
It's not the other way around. Again, this is Paul writing to the Philippians with the anticipation that Christ's coming is imminent. It doesn't mean... This, there's, another, there's another way of explaining what, a, what heaven means for us um, as, as a... Um, um, between the times. We live between the times here and now, here on earth, but what about those who have gone on before us? What is their reality between heaven and earth? I think I know what a summer sermon's going to be. Um, the reality we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is precisely this. And when we sing, this is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be made one. That's what we as Christians long for. So do we care about the earth? You better believe we do. The same way God does. It's in need of his redemption and restoration and, and care. But we care about everything in the earth as well and all those who live in it and belong to it. Pentecost is the celebration of the birth of the church and the coming of God's Holy Spirit. What it means for the Spirit to empower us and to guide us as a church is to help us be this colony of heaven this mission outpost of the Messiah with the responsibility for bringing the life and rule of heaven to bear here on earth. So that just as we read earlier, we're going to call out injustices. We're going we're to stand with people whose voices are silenced. We're going to care about what heaven cares about. And to stand firm in the Lord, which is what he says in chapter 4, verse 1, means we give our allegiance to Jesus and him alone as the true Lord. Again, that meant a, a lot to someone who lived in Philippi because all they ever heard from Rome was Caesar is Lord. Caesar rules. And they're defying that and saying Jesus is Lord. So not only would we never give such allegiance to Caesar, we wouldn't give it to any other appetite or any other addiction either. We would not submit our lives to anything other than the lordship of Jesus Christ and his power over us. We don't give allegiance to Washington or to Beijing or to Moscow, to Tehran, to Jerusalem, to Damascus, you name it. Only to Jesus, whose promise and purpose is to bring the life and rule of heaven to bear on the whole world. So that the reverberation of Easter's hallelujah chorus, the kingdom of this world, is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, of his Messiah, of his King. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Till not only do we bow our knees before 
this one who deserves every, every um, orientation of our very being. But until every being in this world comes to bow their knee, till the day they realize it's true, we know it's true already. I love the description that awaiting Christ's coming is not that, that, that we're all going to be, I mean, I know at other places it's, it gives the impression you look to the skies and Jesus, it's as if he's going to just some glorious light. And I'm trying to think on earth how that would work uh, since it's a sphere. But um, if we're on the other side of the earth when he comes to that side, how's that going to work? But I love the image. It's more like this, that imagine this is a, a high school platform or a, or a theater and the curtain's drawn. And you know what it's like to be part of the audience when there's an event that you've, that you've anticipated and you've longed for? I don't know if it's Hamilton tickets. I don't know what it would be for you. But, but just imagine sitting there and you can feel the intensity and the excitement and you're waiting for the curtain to open, not knowing what's going to happen. But imagine we're, we're here already waiting, and the place is filled up, and everyone else in the place doesn't know, but we already know. As soon as the curtain opens, we know who stands there in glory. That's what it means to live with the reality of the resurrection that has not already been completed in us. We anticipate it. We know what its promises. We know everything about it. The Holy Spirit is already at work in us. But the completion of that transformation where our bodies will be made like his resurrected body and glorified, that's yet to come. And we press on for that prize.